You 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 know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. You you know I D I D in the D in the town all day. I D I D in the D in the F E A. It's time instead for that segment presented by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza on 2008. Because Pagliacci is the bright spot of 2008, and so is bringing back the Sounders. Or bringing the Sounders for the first time. I mean, I it's sort of bringing them back to first division soccer, I guess. But uh, we'll get to that in a second here. Uh, my suggestion for that was because Pagliacci doesn't want to be associated with Seattle Sports in 2008, and neither do we. <laughs> uh, a quick shout out to our friends at Pagliacci who are now offering uh, Rachel's ginger beer bottles in their stores. So wow. you can pick those up while you're getting your takeout Pagliacci or order them with your delivery. That's very exciting. There we go. 2008 is without question the worst year in Seattle sports history. Wow. I mean, it's not even close. Like, 2008 was so miserable a year in Seattle sports. It's It was somehow worse than 2020 where all the sports are going to get canceled. No, in the best case scenario, the sports got canceled in 2008. Just strictly in a sports context, obviously, the, uh, the the other effects of the pandemic, way worse in a real-life sense. But uh, highlighted by the Sonics' move to Oklahoma City, the 2007-08, as we mentioned last week, was Kevin Durant's rookie season, which was overshadowed by the looming possibility of a move and also how bad the team was. Uh, they started 0-8 before back-to-back wins at Miami and Atlanta, the latter in double overtime, coming on the first career game-winning shot for Kevin Durant. Then the Sox lost another six in a row. They were actually kind of competitive in December before beginning a 14-game losing streak. This was really not a fun season to cover for Supersonics.com. At the deadline, they traded Wally Zerbiak, Kurt Thomas, and Delonte West, three of their veterans, then lost 20 of their next 22, or 20 of their 22 in one stretch, including a 168-116 loss. To the Denver Nuggets. They did get two strong wins to finish out the home schedule, 151-147 over Denver in double overtime, and then 99-95 over Dallas in the last game in Seattle, uh, a game I did an entire podcast about a couple of years ago on the 10th anniversary of, and we didn't know it at the time that that was the last game necessarily. Uh, Durant was named Rookie of the Year, but Again, overshadowing everything was the possibility of the move. At the All-Star game, at his press annual press conference, David Stern called the move, quote, an inevitability. Oh, God. We did have some hope in April when the previous ownership group filed a lawsuit based on the good faith, <sighs> best effort clause of the sale agreement trying to get that deal rescinded. Uh, but then came the trial with the city of Seattle over the key arena lease, which ran from June 16th through June 26th. The ruling was set for July 2nd, but that was preempted by news of a settlement between the city and the team allowing the Sonics to move to Oklahoma City. But we sure did get the rights to maybe get the name. There we go. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, should we go over the day of the sale? We've talked about that before, including on the 10th anniversary. We did a, the day a podcast of the sale with Jake. Or the day, the day of I'm sorry, the, the day of the move, yes. Uh, sure. Did, so, uh, 
I found out a couple hours beforehand, and then I had to put the press release on the website, which wow, single toughest part of my uh, time at the Sonics. And then we all went to Kells, and uh, there was an open tab, so that was quite an evening. Who pay, Who paid the tab? The Sonics. The Sonics paid the tab to their credit. Clay Bennett. Clay Bennett paid that tab. You should have run up like a hundred and fifty million dollar tab. <laughs> just, yeah. just to see what happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh. <clears throat> oh, so this was an epic night of drinking for you? Not necessarily for me, but it was an epic night of drinking overall. This was not like you're puking when Sean Kemp brought you a shot night. It was not like that, no. I remember this night, for one thing. <laughs> you no, didn't I sleep remember. on your doorstep. I did, uh, did not. For, I for much of the organization, was that the case, though? Yeah, solid percentage, I would say. I mean, the team moving, I want to hear about a pretty epic drunk. <laughs> so, then, <sighs> so then you went home... And that was that. Well, you were you were in Renton, right? No, I'm just saying. Then you went home, and then the team was gone. Like you just didn't go to work the next day, or no? I mean, first were you off, still going because of storm duties, or yeah? I mean, the move didn't. Act, it took a long period of time. They didn't completely move the Sonics organization <laughs> until bless you, uh, probably September, I think. It was it was a weird summer in the office because just slowly there were fewer and fewer people as you know various people got their offers to relocate from the team and either decided to take those or not and to leave the organization and so it was mostly those of us who were still working on storm stuff and just a handful of like sonic specific people it just kept dwindling over the course of that summer until it was just the storm folks left before we moved to the Furtado Center the old practice facility which was our temporary HQ in that fall but I mean the cool. story I've told about so the next night the storm had a home game the, oh, the moon is July 2nd there's the 4th of July is coming up uh, in between the storm plays a home game and so like it had been a long night and probably got to the office a little late the next day but uh, go to the game that night and I went into the WNBA president was in town at the time and uh, like I knew her a little bit from interviewing her for the storm website doing some videos and uh you know, she says to me in the in like one of the back hallways, "How's it going?" And I'm like, "You know, about as good as can be expected," referencing the move. And at that point, the slogan of the league was, as she says, "We expect great," and that uh-huh. was not the time for it. Not the time. <laughs> she actually responded to you, "We expect great." Yep. Yep. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> expected great from you even that moment oh man uh it's funny because i remember basically i knew the team was moving we you always had that like nibble of hope though and as we've discussed many many times in this podcast that hope is of course a bad thing Um, the worst of things and uh, that little i was just like this lawsuit is gonna go through you know because i was dumb and I mean, I thought I that, like, too. I thought that they were going to be two lame duck seasons and that they were going to be just really miserable. Like, I thought it might be my last game working for the Sonics at Key Arena. I didn't think it was going to be the last game at Key Arena. I mean, we've talked about this before, but I, I still firmly believe if they 
if they would have kept, if they would have had those two seasons, I think the whole world looks different long term. And I don't know if David Stern would have been stoked to have two years of a lame duck team in Seattle, especially as they're getting much better. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the other thing that changed was, of course, the the recession at that point. Yes. When on the court, I mean, <laughs> outside of the team moving, one of the worst things that happened in 2008 was that there was a coach who saw Kevin Durant as a six foot eight player, uh, maybe one of the most versatile players to come into the league ever at the time. And there was a coach out there who saw him and said, that guy is a shooting guard. I mean, I will always defend PJ on this. I find it kind of ridiculous. Like, Kevin Durant and Damian Wilkins were the starting wings. In Seattle, they called Kevin Durant the shooting guard. In Oklahoma City, they started the same two guys, and they called Damian Wilkins the shooting guard. Like, it's a meaningless distinction. Now, what was meaningful is they were starting the two of them with Chris Wilcox, or maybe Nick Collison. I can't even remember. Nick might have been at center by that point, but... They had, like, two non-shooters in the front court, whereas in Oklahoma City they played Jeff Green at power forward, so it was a more modern lineup from that standpoint. But I think that whole, like, he's a shooting guard thing is overplayed. Although, you know who disagrees with me? It's Kevin Durant. <laughs> Kevin Durant. Durant, yeah. We definitely want to be Jake Carlos about fired. Anyway, I, the team moved. It was just, like, I felt like there was a very good chance of the lawsuit going through, and I think that's why it hurt. Because it wasn't like this. It was something acting for a long time. Obviously, we weren't stupid, um, but it was just like we were still holding out this kernel of hope, and then that was taken away from us. You hear the press conference. You hear people who previously were like uh, staunchly in the Stave Arsonics group, all of a sudden changing their tune and thinking that this is a good deal or whatever. And you're like, oh, it's it's over. Fuck. You know, just that, that last little bit of the rug being pulled out from under you in a year and a half or whatever, where it was just happening constantly. There was no good news. You see the vote come up over the league meetings, and you're like, okay, it was a 29-2 vote, 28-2 vote? Uh, I think it might have been 27-2. to two. I think someone might have abstained. But, yeah, it was definitely the only two votes against were Mark Cuban and Paul Allen. And I always, always will respect those owners for doing that. You know, like... Paul Allen makes so much sense having the ties to Seattle, but Mark Cuban is somebody who instantly earns so much respect and really foresight, too, of saying maybe our teams shouldn't be in tiny markets. And you look at the NBA now, and I bet the NBA, if they could just redraw where all the teams were, they would do it differently. And maybe Mark Cuban was somebody who was wise enough to have to have seen that, uh, but de- definitely respected Mark Cuban. And then, of course, Paul Allen for... Uh, standing on the side of Seattle in that situation in the Northwest. Uh, but this moment where it's just like, it, it, it was, it hurt so much more than you thought it would when you'd been through all this and it just being like, oh shit, it's done. And then the team was moved pretty much instantly after that. So I went home to Renton. I was at work and I, I just left. I was like, I gotta go. Nobody at the Vera Project where I was working at the time knew even the slightest bit about what was going on. It wasn't <laughs> like it was so close about. to Key Arena. That, yeah, it's like I could – I remember talking about it on – there are these little benches in the corridor that's right outside of KXP now. You're looking at Key Arena, and I'm like on the phone talking about the team moving. Maybe to you. I don't even know. But – and then it was just like 
I'm looking at this building that I've been to hundreds of times to see this team play. It's basically like I feel like we like grew up at Seattle Center because we were there so often for all sorts of various things. But it was like Seattle Center was home in a lot of different ways. And then it's just over. So uh, I was like, you never went back to Seattle Center again. Yeah, I did not uh, constantly find myself there, um, but including working there every single day for the next seven years. Uh, but then I was just like, I gotta go <laughs> to everybody. It was not a, not a moment of like, hey, this thing happened. Just like, I gotta go. I got myself a forty of old English, and I went to my house in Renton. I drank the forty, and then I just passed out alone. And I was like, this is what I need right now. <laughs> I was like, I I need to be alone in my misery. And then Literally, I woke up. Yeah, go. Well, I, I woke up the next day and it was like, this is over. This is the new world that we need. It was like you get a, you get a day to be miserable. And then it's like, this is the new world. The one that, that really hit was the, about three weeks later or whatever, I was walking around the Capitol Block Party grounds. Uh, we'll talk about Block Party in a second. My favorite time of being involved in a music festival is the like couple hours before doors open. If you're working on it, you're just like walking around. The grounds are being built. There's all this like steam and excitement. It's July. You know, so many people are going to be here in just a couple of hours. It's going to be so much fun. And looking at a Seattle times from like a newsstand outside of cafe Vita. And it was like, you know, Oklahoma city team has a name thunder. And I was just like, fuck them. Just like reading that on the newspaper, because I was so tuned out to what was going on. And I was like, God damn it. That made it feel almost as real as that day. Like, I will never forget that moment. I mean, the ironic thing in hindsight about the day the songs moved is there was a thunderstorm in Seattle. So you almost never have in July. Cool. Love that synergy. All right, let's talk about some other bad shit that happened. Uh, 2008. Do you know football? Oh. So we were pretty excited after that Jake Locker freshman season. Feeling good about things. They open the season against number 21 Oregon on the road and lose 44 to 10. Okay, I fine. Mean, August 30th, I believe, was the date of that game. Like, how do you schedule that? Scheduling is in- insane around this time. Yes. The Huskies were badly overscheduled because check out their next two games after playing number 21 Oregon at number 21 Oregon. They then came back home to take on BYU, which was ranked at the time 15th in the country. And so Jake Locker scores a touchdown right at the end of regulation that seemingly ties that game. But... He gets called for a celebration penalty for throwing the football in the air. They That moves the extra point back. It gets blocked. They lose 28-27. I kick a garbage can. That is correct. Uh, that was the worst penalty in the history of sports. I'm sure there have been worse penalties. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to go pull it up right now. 28-21. <clears throat> oh, Jake on the keeper. Running it in, escapes tacklers, he's in, touchdown, flips the ball in the air. I mean, he, th- he threw it up high. How do you call that? Yeah, How it was nothing gratuitous. a penalty there? Like, it was not, 
it was not taunting. He didn't throw it at a player, right? He didn't throw it, like, if he throws it in the face of a BYU player, that's one thing. This was just him being excited. Hope is a bad thing. Maybe the worst of things. I I am still so upset watching this play. God, I fucking hate Pac-12 refs. I don't, was that even... I guess that or whatever. was. College refs. It doesn't matter. They're bad all across. And then Jake goes... He has to go in that moment. He's so excited. right? He just makes this play where he's invading tacklers. He almost gets brought down, which might have ended the game. And then gets in, flips the ball in the air. It's it's harmless, right? It's not even in the direction, even like how do you process that as a ref? I clearly am not over this. How do you process that as a referee when you're looking at that and be like, oh, could that be a penalty? It didn't even cross our minds. Even national coordinator for college football officiating David Perry conceded. I think it's safe to say on emotional moments, <laughs> officials might become a little more lenient. BYU coach Bronco Mendenhall on Monday reiterated his stance on the call, saying the officials called the play by the rules. Of course. BYU still filled three spots in the AP poll. That's funny. Oh, the the rules exist to teach principles of class and integrity. Oh, my God. There's I fucking hate the NCAA. Uh, so the next I week... I hope Bronco Mendenhall is happy as the head coach of Virginia with an under 500 record in the ACC. He's probably doing fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure he is. <laughs> He's probably pretty convinced there'll be a season this year. So the schedule, <laughs> well, the schedule lightened up the next week. Was number three? When number three, Oklahoma and Sam Bradford came to town. Oh my god! I, I remember, remember that game. So I remember, like, I was going to go to the Storm game the next day in LA. I decided to travel day of. I flew down to L.A. and back all in the same day and covered a game because of the wow. fact that I wanted to stay home to go to this Oklahoma game. And the Huskies lost 55-14. I mean, that was number one pick in the draft, Sam Bradford. Like, It was an honor just to be on the same field. <laughs> no, they weren't even the best team you'd have played that year. It was a very hard schedule. Well, Oklahoma really has had a lot of number one pick quarterbacks. That's three in like the last two decades. Yeah. Uh, so then the next game, so they're 0-3, but they've played three ranked teams so far and probably should have at least gone to overtime against one of them. And then game four, Jake Lucker breaks his thumb and is lost for the season. <laughs> uh, his backup, Ronnie Fouch, completed 45% of his passes what? with 13 interceptions against just four touchdowns. This is one of those situations where I think it would have made sense to pay Cam Newton. <laughs> The firing of Tyrone Willingham was announced after the first seven losses for the Huskies. After a narrow 35-28 loss in that Stanford game, Game 4, their only loss by fewer than 20 points was the Apple Cup against a 1-10 in Wazoo, which the Huskies lost 16-13 in overtime. They then was that the this... one that they had the... Did Lewis Rankin return, or is that later? I'm not sure. What do you, what do Lewis you say? Lewis Rankin return a kick for a touchdown? I think I that mean, must have been later. There was only one touchdown, so no, it was not that. Willie Griffin, who is someone oh, I have boy. no memory of. <laughs> people named Willie Griffin and Terrence Daly combined for over 200 rushing yards for the Huskies on 46 carries in that game because that's how little they trusted Ronnie Fouch, who threw 16 passes. And I have no idea why those people are anymore. It's gone. <laughs> I've just erased all memory of that. Uh, 
He finished the season with a 48-7 loss at Cal with Javid Best running for 311 yards oh, and man, four touchdowns. Javid Best. Oh, he was awesome. There was like a long line of really fun Cal running backs. Oh, yeah. Justin Forsett. I think he was the year before. Uh, Bring them all all into camp for the Seahawks. Agreed. So the Seahawks reached the end of their run after winning the NFC West. Really quick on the Huskies before we get there. Uh. When any of these fuckers complain about Coach Pitt or Husky football... Or about right how, like, oh, they, they're not competitive enough in the big games. After going to the College World Playoff, playing in the Peach Bowl, after going to the Fiesta Bowl, and then playing in the Rose Bowl in three consecutive years, and they have one mildly down season, and people were complaining about UW football, you fuckers were not there with us in 2008 in the stands all alone. There were so many times in that student section where we had an entire section to ourselves. Or it was like... like <laughs> I don't know the, if it was an entire section. It was the section just to the left because the student section was on the side at the time. And we would be just to the left of it because we had end zone tickets and we would walk over there. And there, there were times that there was like maybe two other people. But we were there for every single one of these goddamn games in the 2000 season. We deserve everything that could possibly come to us after that. If you have suffered through 2008, you get to enjoy all of the fruits of everything that happened after. And you cannot complain about Coach Pete and going to three consecutive BCS games. Agreed. Uh, also, the Huskies lost 56 to nothing to Cal that year. Wow. Shouts to, to Pete Carroll. So the, the Seahawks. USC, you mean? <laughs> what, did, what did I say? Cal. <laughs> oh, to Cal, yeah, to USC. We already talked about the Cal game. Yeah. Uh, the Seahawks reached the end of their run after winning the NFC West four consecutive years. They went four and twelve in Mike Holmgren's final season as head coach, starting the season one and five, and never really competitive. Matt Hasselbeck was limited to seven games by multiple injuries. His backup, Seneca Wallace, actually played reasonably well in his stead. But the defense was 27th in DVOA. Uh, Julius Jones replaced Sean Alexander at running back. And, oh, God, the Julius Jones era. Yeah. The, the main thing I remember about that season is playing at Dallas on Thanksgiving and just, like, not even being excited about the idea of playing <laughs> had, on Thanksgiving. They had MB3, right? Dallas. Marion Barber? Yeah, Marion Barber the third, who is, like, a thrilling player for, like, a season. There was that Minnesota running back factory that he came from. Uh, yes, he had 10 carries for 32 yards in that game. There we Thrilling. go. <laughs> Thrilling. It is weird that the Seahawks played... I think there were a couple games that they played on Thanksgiving during this period where they're just not... Was this the only one, or was there a second? No, I think there was a second. I think you're correct, but I don't know what year the other one was. And they just didn't even really register for us, right? It's kind of insane how different that is from eventually Richard Sherman eating turkey legs on the 49ers field and like maybe the greatest moment of Seahawks history happening on Thanksgiving. But this was a time where it's just like, oh, yeah, the Seahawks are on. <laughs> it's Thanksgiving. The Seahawks are on. Whatever. We have to ignore this. <laughs> it's kind of crazy how how different that is from modern times. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, the bottom fell out of the Seahawks quite quickly. And for the home granera, it was it was clear that. That era was over, 
and you know Hass stuck around for another season after that, or I guess another several <laughs> seasons after that. Um, and I think he had some okay times, but it was like this regime was over in Matt Hasselbeck's tenure as like a Super Bowl competing quarterback was definitely done. Yeah. And then we get the Jim Mora year. So well, uh, we're going to get to that. The good news is they drafted Aaron Curry with the fourth pick that year. <laughs> yes, that was the fruit of their, their uh, last season. That was the only Thanksgiving game at, at Dallas, it appears. Uh, at least in we the both modern, remember right? a second game. There's some sort of Mandela effect of a, <laughs> a, a second Thanksgiving game. The other times they played at Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving at Dallas, 1980 and 1986, which, believe it or not, I do not remember <laughs> those two games. <laughs> wow. Really makes you think. UW men's basketball missed the NCAA tournament for a second consecutive season. This time it was their first sub-500 finish since Lorenzo Romar's first season on Montlake. They went 7-11 in Pac-10 play with Ryan Appleby as their second leading scorer. Yeah. Huskies did manage to beat number five UCLA at home when Tim Bor- Morris threw the ball off Alfred Aboya's face late in the game to avoid a five-second count. I was, was, I was in class ball. with Tim Morris in college in 2007. UCLA reached the Final Four that year and lost just four games, went 35-40, and 40, so that was something. Uh, I was only reminded of this game because I was going back through my Facebook posts, and Katie posted, what a game, after that one or something like that. <laughs> This was like a classic early social media, just no context whatsoever. Exactly. Yeah, oh, the best. So I had to look it up. Like, I wasn't sure. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know what? That was a pretty good game. What a... I mean, it was weird because there was, like, such a controversy about, like, is was it unethical for Tim Morris to throw the ball off Alfred Aboya's face? Like, what a weird year in college sports that the big problems were Jake Locker threw the ball in the air and Tim Morris not, like unsportsmanlike. He was just, like, trying to win the game, threw the ball off Alfred Aboya's face. Like, yeah, ideally, you should definitely not do that, but, like, it was us all chill out. doing that was a lot more egregious than Jake Locker. Like, as far as disrespecting your opponents, that's a lot worse than Jake Locker flipping the ball in the air. I mean, it was worse, but I don't think it was, like, it wasn't, again, like, he was angry at Alfred Aboya. It was just, like, he threw it out of time, and he couldn't think of anything else, so he just threw it directly at him. Like, I... Uh, it was bad, but I don't think it was that bad. Anyways, the Huskies, so they were so upset about getting snubbed from the he, NIT. He just le- learned nothing from me in that romantic literature class that we took together. <laughs> <laughs> the Huskies were so upset the previous year that they got snubbed from the NIT that they helped create, they, like, their anger was behind, helped part behind the creation of the, the College Basketball Invitational, the CBI. And they then played in... more Husky basketball situation than to be angry about being snubbed from the NIT that you create some other bullshit tournament to go to that isn't the NCAA tournament? They played in the inaugural CBI the next year, and then they lost at home 72-71 to Valpo. Oh, and then not taking it seriously. That's that's yeah. like the most Husky basketball situation of all time, is to be so angry that you're snubbed by the NCAA tournament that you create some bullshit tournament because you're offended, and then you don't take that tournament seriously when you do play in it. I mean, they should have made the NIT the year before, but that year, that's that was a low point for a period of time in UW men's basketball. Because like if, they, would, if, they, would if they won the NIT, we'd be looking back in that year still a bad year of Husky basketball. Ah! I don't know if I go that far. 
Uh, so the Seattle Mariners also regressed badly after their promising above 500 2007. They got excited. They knew they were close to contending. So they traded a group of players, including future five-time All-Star Adam Jones, 2008 All-Star <coughs> closer George Sherrill, and eventual All-Star starting pitcher Chris Tillman to Baltimore for Eric Bedard, who got the opening day start. Bedard was limited to 15 starts by injury, and the offense collapsed as the Mariners lost 101 games. I do remember, I think I was reading some sort of sports preview before this year, because I wasn't paying attention to the Mariners, but I might have been playing fantasy baseball, I want to say, in 2008, and just like reading a thing and being like, the Mariners, and, and a prediction that the Mariners were going to win the AL, AL West. It was oh, like they no. went all in on Eric Bedard. And I think Eric Bedard was actually quite a good player, but was just never healthy. Uh, he was a good player. I don't know if I would say he was quite a good player. That, wow, you remember they went all Cliff Lee trade? Was that the next year? The Mariners really have a history of like going all in on situations when they're nowhere near the playoffs. Yeah, because they like had a long stretch where it was like one year they would be above five hundred and it's promising. Things are looking up, and then the next year they would lose a hundred games. Man, Randy Messenger. Have you have you ever heard of that person? He sounds more like an eighties baseball player than anybody on this roster. <laughs> That is correct, but uh, Randy Messenger sounds like he was like six and ten for the Tigers in like nineteen eighty seven. I know. I feel like Randy Messenger played in an eighties band. Randy Messenger. Yeah, he maybe played the guitar. He was in the Replacements, or you think he was in more of a, a dance band? More of a dance band. <laughs> Man, this team was bad. <clears throat> So in somewhat happier news, the 2008 Seattle Storm, first off, they were still in Seattle. Uh, the go. sale of a t- the team to a group of local women calling themselves Force 10 Hoops, which continue to own the team today, it was announced on January 8th. A day later, they announced Brian Egler is the team's new head coach. A wild offseason saw the Storm trade for swing cash, followed by the signings of free agents Cheryl Swoops and Yolanda Griffith, giving wow. the team five All-Stars and three MVPs. And wow. what we called the perfect storm. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> that's that's because you got a, a marketing degree. <laughs> I, I did not. I, I've i been involved in some of this. I don't think I perfect storm was my suggestion, although I didn't enjoy it. Uh, they started slowly. Be- nine season, Eric Bedard, 2.82 ERA in, <laughs> in 15 starts. He was really good. 1.1 whip. Eric yeah, Bedard is good. good. I, I mean, if he was healthy, he could never pitch past five innings, of course. If Eric Bedard was healthy, he was a very good pitcher. He was fifth in the Cy Young voting in 2007. Yeah, I, he had... It was just... He was always injured. Anyway, back to your stroke of marketing genius. The perfect <laughs> storm, you said? I don't know if you heard there was a movie. Uh, it started slowly before a seven-game inning streak. The second that movie came out, there was like a clock went up on the wall to when the storm were going to use that in advertising. Okay, so here's the thing. I, the thing that really stands out to me about that offseason is like I, I use the – this is the royal we. Like internally there was a list of like all the reasons that people didn't buy tickets. So it's like we're upset that the team is going to move to Oklahoma City. We don't like the head coach. We want more star players. It's like, look, we answered all of these things <laughs> in one offseason. Like, literally everything you could have been unhappy about changed. So it was a great time from that standpoint. 
did the did the ticket sales go way up because of that? Eh, they went up. I don't know if I'd say they went <laughs> way up. <laughs> they stayed the same. People don't actually care about those things when they answer the questions. Oh, I mean that is true, but they they did go up. Like people were excited about the team. Like they added two MVPs and another Hall of Famer in all likelihood in the same off season. It's like epic. Uh, started slowly before a seven-game winning streak in early July. Lauren Jackson was injured in the Olympics representing Australia, which lost in the gold medal game to the U.S. and former Storm coach Anna, Ann Donovan, as well as Sue Bird. Uh, and I, th- I think Swing Cash might have also been on that team, too. Uh, was unable to return after the break. Bird took over as the team's leading scorer, and that, along with elite defense, helped the Storm to a franchise record 22 wins. But with Cash also ailing, she'd undergo back surgery after the season. The Storm lost to the Sparks in three games in the first round. Uh, their fourth consecutive first round exit. Well, at least the Storm trading for Swing Cash set up your greatest sports achievement ever in her drafting you in a pickup basketball game. No, that was Cheryl Swoops. It was a nice try. It was Cheryl Swoops. It was Cheryl Swoops. Well, either way, right? A player yes. that they acquired in 2008. I thought it was Swing Cash. No, no, it wasn't Swin. Well, Cheryl Swoops is even more legendary, right? I mean, yes, she's one of the greatest players in women's basketball history. There you go. I've never been drafted and picked up by one of the greatest basketball players in women's basketball history. As far as I know. I can confirm. I don't think. (laughs) No. no. (laughs) Yeah, she never won WNBA MVP a single time. Pelton cast MVP. Pelton cast MVP. That's true. (laughs) Call me when Cheryl wins one of those. We'll have to get around the pod. Okay, so you mentioned it earlier, the Seattle Sounders FC continuing to move towards uh, becoming an expansion franchise in 2009. So the big fear early in 2008 was an initial pull to name the team that did not include the Sounders is an option, the name that had been used here going back to the NASL in the 1970s, and then also was being used for the minor league USL team that was playing before the Sounders moved up to the MLS. Uh, then they announced Sounders FC is a compromise, compromise choice after an overwhelming number of responses to that poll. Used Sounders is a writing Yes. And my conspiracy theory is they wanted to name it the Sounders FC all the time, but they wanted people to get upset about it to generate excitement. I, that's that's just like it. part of me will always believe they did that strategically. That did not. That that is putting way too much credit in sports marketing individuals. I don't. They had to know if people wanted the team to be named the Sounders. Everyone knew that. Let me give you a counterpoint to just let you understand what the level of marketing for people who are working in sports <laughs> is. This is going to be a the perfect, perfect storm. <laughs> Look, it was like a, it was a really cool photo of all the starters together that I used on the website a lot. What year do you think t- that movie came out? Two thousand three. The year two thousand. You were only eight years behind. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're like, we have to capitalize on this. It's okay. The book only came out in nineteen ninety seven. So, <sighs> well, most people anyway. were waiting for the movie. The perfect store. The first no, sounding. No, 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 they, they probably they probably had the the idea to to do this to do, do the old okie doke with the uh, <laughs> with the name. I mean, they just, just can't ex- have been expect, caught off guard by it. The most obvious thing that you can. From this, this is all marketing, but 
nobody so is they, that like th- this this is the problem that people who believe in conspiracies don't understand is that most people are dumb and you should just assume the most obvious thing there has to be some sort of is this Occam's razor that is Occam's razor yes there you go boom called it I feel like in this case Occam's razor is like not included as a choice as compared to like Seattle FC was one of the choices like obviously that was an extremely boring name but a lot think, of teams have been named that since then. True. But those teams didn't necessarily have a history in the dating back to the 1970s like the Sounders did. Now, oh, another way to view it is maybe the Seattle ownership group wanted to name them the Sounders, but MLS was opposed to it at that point, and so they needed like the response from the fans to kind of prove it to MLS. No, I'll like, tell that's you another exactly way. what happened. It was the ownership group came in. They had nothing to do with the previous Sounders. They're like, yeah, we're yeah, here. Adrian Hadar was part of the ownership group. He was the owner of the previous Sounders. We need to establish ourselves as a new, interesting thing. But also, we want to make sure that we're in the the soccer lineage, that people know that this is serious football. So we're going to call ourselves that. Seattle FC. That's how that conversation went. Okay. And then they were like, Sounders? And he was like, no, 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 no. This is about starting anew. Okay. <laughs> we put out two scenarios here. I'm telling you, whatever, whatever scenario it is, it is more likely than them intentionally leaving the name that they wanted to have off just to get people to write it in. Because that could backfire very severely. I'm looking at a fan poll from 2007 on a an MLS uh, message board. 61% of the voters picked Seattle Sanders. Doesn't matter. Okay. Oh. Anyway. So their first signing. <laughs> we was... have to be we have to be very friendly about our arguments today. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> their first signing was Sebastian Latou. Playing for the USL Sounders was the league MVP and helped the Sounders to the court semifinals of the US Open Cup for the second consecutive years. Year, they beat the Kansas yeah. City Wizards six. Okay. They beat the Kansas City Wizards six five on PKs in a quarterfinal win at Quest Field that we attended our second consecutive that, year. Right? That was fun. Yeah, it was. Before losing at fellow USL side Charleston Battery in the semis on PKs, partially because Charleston included a young man. Named Oswaldo Alonso. Wow. There we go. They announced the signing of uh, Northwest soccer legend Lacey native Casey Keller in August, coming back to the U.S. after many years playing in Europe. October brought uh, former Arsenal star Freddie Jungberg as their first designated player. And then key expansion draft pickups included Brad Evans and James Riley. And then lastly, they concluded the group in December 2008 by introducing Ziggy Schmidt It's our new head coach just months after he, or weeks probably, after he had won the MLS Cup with the Columbus crew. Pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they definitely started it off the right way, right? With Casey Keller, both uh, a local product and who, you know, for casual fans like myself at the time, one of the few American soccer players who I was even familiar with. Yep. And so, I mean, he was coming over, he was at Fulham right before then, spent a bunch of years at Tottenham. Like, he was a big name oh, as yeah. far as international soccer players go. And then bringing him back was freaking huge. It was like, okay, we're in. They have Casey Keller, like, 
this is happening, and you you could just take the whole thing seriously right from that very beginning. Like we didn't, I and maybe I'm speaking for myself, had no idea who Freddie Lundberg was at the time, but <laughs> no. like he he definitely seemed like the type of player who, if you paid a lot of attention to soccer internationally, you would have known. Yeah, I mean, the people we knew who did follow it like that were excited about it from that standpoint. Also, the people who fo- followed Kelvin Klein ads. I mean, he spent over a decade at Arsenal. Like, he, he was definitely not a no one when he came over. No, he only scored no, not two at all. goals in the history of the Sounders. Wow. I mean, he was never a huge goal scorer. <laughs> That's not shocking, but he was definitely more of like the in the MLS style. Never really agreed with Lundberg. But he was still really exciting. When he got the ball at his feet with space to operate, that was very exciting. Okay, there's one other thing we should talk about from 2008 before we get to music. And that is a little thing I like to call Snowpocalypse. <laughs> okay. I can't believe that was 2008. There was so much snow. There was just really a lot of snow. <laughs> that night that Cheryl Swoops picked me for the pickup game... Uh, at the Furtado Center was the start of the big snowstorm. Wow. An interesting and, wrinkle to the story. <laughs> and you were like, oh, it's not actually going to snow. They're just making this up. You taunted the snow. And then it snowed Me? so much. Yes. I taunted the snow? Yeah. This is saved and recorded in our fantasy football blog. Oh, God. I hope that's been deleted from the internet. Heartbreaking, heartbreaking work of fantasy football genius. Oh, uh, it sure has not. Oh God, let's not go ahead and link to that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the ski low post is still here. There's a ski low post, and the Dave Eggers reference is really very nice. Uh, <laughs> it snowed a lot, uh, so I think what it was. I remember my work at the time. Well being like we all stayed home for a day because it was supposed to snow and then it just didn't snow and then i remember my boss sending an email being like this is snow and it was like really coming down and then it kind of just didn't go away for like uh, unprecedented amount of time for seattle right it was like two solid weeks where there was just and it just kept snowing more I remember there there was one night, so it was December 20th, because we were supposed to have a Starfucker and Natalie Portman-shaped head show at the Vero Project, uh, which may come up later on Remember Some Years. And it was like crazy sold out, the show. And it was supposed to be on December 20th. And it snowed so much, I was like, we have to cancel the show. Like, nobody is going to be able to get there. And I think that night, we both had a snow and freezing rain and windstorm. So I lived on a hill in Renton, like literally on the like incline of a hill. And it, it winded so much that there are these big like, like hills of snow. So it like, like plume over. And then there's this thick layer of just ice on top. So I remember walking out into the snow and you would crunch through like a layer of ice and then there was the pack of snow underneath and it was unlike anything we'd ever experienced in our lives beforehand. I mean, I never shoveled snow before 2008. This is the first time I ever shoveled snow. Yep. 
we also had a moment where <laughs> Mrs. Fantasy Genius, I think uh, there was like, a, I think this was December 23rd. So we're like right on the heels of Christmas. I'm like sleeping. She wakes me up. She's like, I have a bladder infection, like a really bad bladder infection. I need to go to the hospital right now. And again, living on a hill, not super convenient for driving during snowpocalypse. Uh, it was like 1 a.m. or whatever. And so we're in the car and <clears throat> driving down the hill. And the car, I just like lose control of the car. And this is, I don't know, a Chevy Lumina or a Toyota Camry or something. And it's just like swirling around and I'm hitting the brakes. And there was our, we, we, I completely lost control of the car. And there was a neighbor's house right down the street from us that had this huge edge, like a cliff, basically. And it was like five feet high and then a car below it into their house. And we stopped within three inches of that cliff. And then I was like, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> we're, I'm like, we're not driving. This was like a foot of snow on the streets. And I was like, we're going to have to wait until tomorrow. And then... Uh, we got out and had to deal with that later. I remember the next morning just shoveling the car out of snow and looking down and being like, thank God I did not drive my car into this neighbor's house. Like that was, it was a crazy time. Yes, it was. Also, I lost to uh, Katie in the fantasy football final. It was one of the few years that I was not in the fantasy football final. So Snowpocalypse and the Sonics moved to this name. Also, Greg Nichols, worst year ever. Oh, God. Out. Let's talk about music. Uh, well, speaking of Snowpocalypse, actually, I remember I have a distinct memory of Christmas Day. Uh, I, this fantasy gene is still in the bladder infection. We actually went to the hospital or to the urgent care on Christmas morning. And you and all of our family were in Boulevard Park together, right? Because it was pretty convenient for you all to get together in the snow. I'm in Renton all alone, basically. And. I left Mrs. Fantasy Genius at home for ravioli dinner on Christmas Day. And I remember driving through, like, braving the snow a little bit and driving to Grandma and Grandpa's house on Christmas Day to go eat ravioli. And I was listening to a band called Times New Viking at the time. Uh, have you ever heard of them? No. Man, that record still slaps. Rock, they're like a noise band out of Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, out of Columbus, and it was like noisy and abrasive, but also catchy. And I feel like that was a lot of like the 2008 sound. There was we were sort of moving past the the more traditional indie rock that was happening beforehand, or the more like, I would say baroque indie rock of the like the more dad indie rock. And into there was like a Crosby, Stills and Nash inspired indie rock that was happening, and then also the like noisier end. Uh, and I remember listening to that just like I always think of that drive there. Um, but taking it back to the the more, I guess, I don't know if this is really Crosby, Souls, Nash, like a little bit more Paul Simon like. Uh, but the Vampire Weekend, Vampire Weekend, self-titled debut, 2008. So there's been a lot of questions lately about like, you know, uh, challenges, I guess, about the albums with no skips on them. That Vampire Weekend de debut to me stands out as one that is like front to back so strong. Really, self-titled yeah. over Modern Vampires of the City. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. Really, uh, they were a, a weirdly tough band. I mean, I like 
I bought the CD at Easy Street Records. It was like seventy nine, seven ninety nine at Easy Street Records. I walked over from the Vera Project. I remember getting an email from Ezra Koenig <laughs> while they were self really? booking. Yeah, they were self. I, it was either him or Rostam, and they were self booking a tour. And it you was didn't like save that. I, I I feel stupid for not, but they were they were <sighs> nobody. I didn't book the show. I didn't even engage with it. This was it was like. <clears throat> It's like a vivid memory. I've tried to find it later on at bookingtheviraproject.org. And being, it, so it was like, hey, we're this young rock band out of Columbia or something, uh, putting on our new record and trying to tour. They didn't have an agent. Like, they, they were self-booking a tour. This is Vampire Weekend. And, like, there was steam behind the band. I should have booked the show. Uh, and I think at some point later, I mean, it just blew up instantly for Vampire Weekend. It was this people is- talking about, like, industry plants but it was like vampire weekend was so i mean the debut record came out on xl like they were destined to be successful extremely quickly sadly and, this is uh this is in 2009 but this is your equivalent of me getting an email from zach Lowe through like the basketball prospectus like email serve function it's funny because looking back on it now in the year 2008 the thing that i regretted the most music wise was a band called the pains of being pure at heart hit me up to, and they wanted to play the Vera project stage at Capitol block party. And I didn't have the money to pay them <laughs> for our, our budget that by like modern standards. when I think back on it now should be for the entire weekend is less than one band should be paid. Uh, so I did have the money to pay them and they ended up playing the main stage at Capitol block party. And I was devastated by this. <laughs> and I was like, the pains of being pure at heart is the future of music. Uh, but yeah, definitely passed on a Vampire Weekend show in 2008. <laughs> uh, but who gives a fuck about an Oxford comma? So uh, there was that one. Also in 2008, I remember... Uh, so I, I officially got hired booking the Vera Project January 1st, 2008. And January or February 15th, we had a show uh, where... Oh my god, what is the band called? Oh, fuck. The Pharmacy. Uh, or headlining from Vashon Island. And uh, this dude, the main member of the pharmacy, Scotty, was like, hey, I asked my friends Fleet Foxes to open the show on February 15th. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, cool, I remember them. I'd reviewed Fleet Foxes, and a really negative review of Fleet Foxes. Wait, for the really? Web- for the website that I was writing for before in 2007, mercurialsound.com. I shit on this was they were opening for Matt Costa at the Crocodile. So Fleet Foxes had an, like an early early EP out before the Sun Giant EP came out, and they opened for Matt Costa at the Crocodile. And I remember shitting on them and just being like, they're very good looking. <laughs> and me and Jan went to it. Jan like it was like it was a pretty hip thing for Jan to have been at the Fleet Foxes show so early on. So anyway, the pharmacy were like, we booked our friends Fleet Foxes to, to open the show, and I'm like, oh cool, I remember them. And uh, there was a Stranger article that had come out, like, a week beforehand. And at the time, I had never seen ticket sales increase so quickly. And it was just, like, a a switch flipped. And it was, like, all of a sudden, every single person in Seattle discovered Fleet Foxes. And we're like, this is going to take over Seattle music. And then by, I think, that April, they had signed a Sub Pop already. They they played the Vera stage at Capitol Block Party the previous year, um, but they'd signed to Sub Pop, and the EP that really broke them, 
the Sun Giant EP had come out, I think, that April of 2008. Yeah, April 8th, 2008. Sun Giant EP came out. And it's just like, I, the Fleet Foxes self-titled that came out that summer, I'm a fan of. The EP is 18 minutes and 50 seconds of perfect music. That's exactly. I would put that the self-titled debut right there with the Vampire Weekend. It is again front to back, so solid. The, I, there was something about, and I think they eventually bundled them together. But like the the Sun Giant EP, to me was just like this band is there. There are those moments when I think they recorded that on Vashon. Actually, I oh, know they recorded it at Bear Creek. Um, there are moments where I'm like, <laughs> oh, with a review of you from the Rolling Stones here on uh, Mercurial Sound. Oh, God. I reviewed the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones are like a friend that you stopped hanging out with in 1981. Why do you, why do you have to find my reviews? <laughs> <laughs> That's still up, Mercurial Sound? Are you using the Wayback is, Machine again? I sure am, buddy. <sighs> why did you have to have some bad takes in 2006? Like, well, did I have that's negative? That's the real question. Lately, though, you've, we've been asking them to come over for a cup of tea more often than any other time in the last 25 years before now. I guess this did turn positive. Okay. But the Rolling Stones? Yeah. I would hope so. Good God. Um, <laughs> uh, but that, that EP was perfect. And then the full length came out. Not quite as good as the EP, but also, like, it's one of those things where you're just like, how am I living 20 minutes from where this music is being recorded? Like, music that is just, like, so fucking timeless. I'm like, there is a person so close to me recording these harmonies that are going to last for centuries. I just feel like it was almost like... And then into that, like, I also, like, got to know very mildly Robin Pecknold and, the, like, the basically the whole band around that time period. And it was like, I just can't even believe these people. And it all blew up so fast. I mean, there was a Sasquatch that year where there was some band that couldn't make it through the border and Fleet Foxes were playing on like a secondary stage and this band couldn't make it through the border. I can't remember who it was. And then they just had Fleet Foxes play the main stage too. About Tristan. Oh God, why? I like Entourage a lot. <laughs> and that this guy from the Sprite commercials. Uh, well, Thirst from the Sprite commercials does still hold up. <laughs> true, true. It's still the time. <laughs> uh, 2006. Oh, God. Look, we're talking in 2008 here, okay? I know, but that's when that was, that this would bio was written was 2006. Jesus Christ. When you were age two, lowercase o. Okay, more, more 2006 music, or 2008 music. Uh... Stay positive, but hold steady. I was not like a, a huge Boys and Girls in America fan. It's fine. But the first few seconds of Constructive Summer, the first song on Stay Positive, uh, there's talking about getting drunk on top of water towers, like raise a toast to St. Joe Strummer. And I was just like, we're fucking back. <laughs> it was like, I think it came out that summer. And it was definitely, it was the theme to drinking heavily. That summer, and that's what the state, what the whole study were all about. Sounds constructive. Uh, Alopecia by Y. I don't know if you've ever listened to this record. 
I don't think I have, no. Uh, number one vibraphone record of the year. <clears throat> uh, this is Yoni Wolf's Y from Cincinnati. And it, it, still to this day, I will always ride for this album. Like, every second, his, like, very, like, um, self-aware, sort of rapping, sort of singing, these, like, dense moments that build into, like, vibraphone jams. Uh, it was it was definitely the perfect moment of why the beginning of Beach House uh, we have uh, nouns by No Age where I was talking about things getting noisy but like the debut full length on Sub Pop by No Age and it was like this was that DIY scene that I was talking about last last episode of Let's Remember Some Years and it all of a sudden had become kind of professional it's like oh this is like a I remember seeing No Age a No Age video on some sort of version of 120 minutes or whatever, an MTV show. And I was like, Whoa, man, I was like, this band's going to be massive. Uh, and then of course the most important record to come out in 2008. Do you know what that is? I, I'm not sure where you're going with this. Exactly. 808s and heartbreaks. Okay. That's what I assumed, but I didn't know if you were being ironic there. Without 808s and Heartbreaks, there doesn't happen, like, probably, like, a decade of music after. To this day, I'd be, you know, like, artists like Post Malone, Tyler the Creator, Kid Cudi, who was affiliated with that, but, like, really broke because of it. I just do not think the whole generation of rap music that happened after it, you know, like, Odd Future in general, I think, was this this album was so important for what they were doing and it was like dark and cynical and auto-tuned and it was like i think the next summer jay-z did death of auto-tune and it was like you fucking you're an old man now jay-z like auto-tune is not going away kanye did it on this record and it's still to this day here to stay and it's like 808s and heartbreaks was probably more so than any other Kanye record, the most like long-term groundbreaking and influential. If there was like a Velvet Underground Kanye record, it's 808s and Heartbreaks more than it is anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you probably never listened to it. No, I hadn't really listened to the whole album entirely. I mean, obviously I've listened to like, the singles <laughs> off of it, but when I listened to it... Poor little LA girl. It, in 2020, it was the first time. In 2020. Uh, do you feel like you hear some of what I'm talking about, though? It's pretty subtle, but yes. I mean, like, Flower Boy by Tyler Crater just does not happen without 808s and Heartbreaks. <clears throat> uh, any other albums that stand out to you from 2008? Well, we got to talk about The Recession by Jeezy. If only for the song, My President is Black. Which I didn't realize didn't come out before after the election. For some reason, retro, like I had just assumed that that song with Nas came out after the election, but it came out on the day that Obama secured the Democratic nomination. Wow. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a campaign song and uh, uh, a correct prognostication. Wow. <laughs> uh- we're just talking about the election in a second. Okay, I wanted to say, 2008, 
first ever. You're talking about it now. Oh wait, this is 2009 that I have up. Fuck me. All right, we're gonna come back to that. Uh. Oh, God. I mean, there's a couple other things musically we should mention. What is that? Well, Halo is maybe the best Beyonce song. Okay. Even though I Am Sasha Fierce is definitely not the best Beyonce album. I I feel like that one's sort of been lost in time. It's her most played song on Spotify. Really? No, By... the album, not the song. Oh, the album, yeah. The I Am Sasha Fierce. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Especially because the Sasha Fierce concept definitely did not go on. When I saw that, I was just like, what? <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Capital Block Party, 2008. Wait, I have to find this poster. Okay, here we go. So the lineup of Capital Block Party. Headlining, we have Vampire Weekend. Ever heard of them? I mean, that's how quickly this happened for Vampire Weekend. That they, Wow, the Kenya Dawson moment happened. In, Juno happened in 2008. Is that right? Um <clears throat> Vampire Weekend, The Hold Steady, Lasabi Fav, Girl Talk. So Girl Talk had moved from Numos to this year. He was on the main stage. Chromio, Kimia Dawson, USE, uh, The Dodos. So this Capital Block Party, it was the first ever time that I had booked a stage at Capital Block Party. Next week, I'm going to talk about how great my stage was. But <clears throat> before the festival had opened, uh, me and third punk brother Reese, I... God, that's such a little shit. At <laughs> 23 <laughs> years old, it was just like ridiculous that this, I felt like this was a reasonable thing to do. Uh, so I booked the stage. Other people were running the stage, so I was not like being negligent work-wise, but <clears throat> I'd, I'd gotten it all set or whatever. Uh, I went up to the production person for Capital Block Party and was like, do you know where there's a liquor store? And then he pointed me out the liquor store that's in Capitol Hill. And I can't even believe that I thought that that was a reasonable thing to do at like 10 a.m. on a Friday <laughs> before block party. We were so hyped on the Hold Steady that summer that we got a fifth of Dark Bacardi, which they sing about on an earlier song, drank the entire bottle of liquor in or around my car parked like basically where the garage is i think now and i, mean, I remember the garage existed then didn't it i guess i guess it was a, a block walk up from there toward block party and a block north of the garage so i remember chris smith shows up and here's like these drunk motherfuckers <laughs> at like 3 p.m or whatever and then so he came and hang out. We drank an entire fifth of alcohol before the festival even opened that year. My first ever day of having booked a stage at a fucking music festival. Because I should have never been given that responsibility as a 23-year-old or whatever, a 22, 23-year-old. And locked my keys in the car because we were just fucking wasted. And <laughs> Reese has talked about this on a podcast before. Lock, locked my keys in the car had to call a locksmith to get them to open my car finally the whole steady you're playing we're in the like front row screaming along Reese gets kicked out of the festival for puking in the porta potties of the VIP area 
and <laughs> sneaks back in and is in the photo pit. I remember being in, like, the front row, like, yelling along or whatever, being, like, getting drunk on top of water towers. And then <laughs> there's Reese in the photo pit, and I'm like, how the hell are you here? Or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, that was my first ever day of booking a music festival. There you go. Whew, should not have had that kind of responsibility as a 23-year-old. Anyway, are that we, was music. That was music in 2008. Well, wait, are we gonna check out the Bumbershoot? Um, I didn't pull up the Bumbershoot lineup. Great to do like blogging. We did discover <laughs> the Bumber blog from 2008. Oh god! And what a Bumber blog it was. <laughs> I actually felt like looking back on it, I was like, some of this stuff, this is not as bad as I would have expected. Okay, right? so we've got uh, Death Cab headlining one night. Death Cab that year with uh, uh, I Will Possess Your Heart. So okay. It's a strong year for Death Cab. I really don't even remember this bummer shit at all. I think I'd fully, trans- like, fully transition to Block Party being my number one festival. Like Stone Temple Pilots played... Yeah, it's starting to become kind of a weird lineup. <laughs> Wait until I get involved. <laughs> oh, no. Then I'm going to be taking credit for Stone Temple Pilots playing. Man, I know that I went to Bumbershoot for, like, so many straight years. I do not remember a single... This might have been the year that I went for, like, five minutes. There was one Seattle... Bumbershoot. Seattle PI reports, Bumbershoot 2008, the best mid-90s Lollapalooza lineup ever. <laughs> Oh, damn. That sounds like me writing the bummer blog about it. Um, I, I do not remember seeing any of these artists. Beck, Stone Temple Pilots, Death Cab, T.I. played, apparently. Don't recall that. Um, the Offspring, Keisha Cole, Lucinda Williams, Paramore, Nico Case, Band of Horses. I mean, it's not bad. There was one bummer shoot that I went and got passes to see Aziz Ansari do stand-up because you had to go get passes early. And then I was trying to go back to go see Aziz Ansari and ended up not making it in time. And I think that was the entirety of my bummer shoot. And that might have been 2008. But also I might have been involved in booking by 2009. We're still a year ahead of the big Aziz Ansari breakout, so we'll get to that next year. Anything else on music in 2008? No, I think that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take right. my block party victory lap next week. <laughs> I thought it was going to be this week, but I'll come back to that. So the big TV debut of 2008 was a little show called Breaking Bad. What I like to call a sequel. <laughs> now I forgot the name of the show. Wow. Better Call Saul? Yes. Is that the one you're thinking uh, yeah, I did not watch Breaking Bad in 2008. I remember, I vaguely remember seeing like an early part of like one of the early episodes because I, and I'm not sure what I would have been watching before it exactly. But I'm being like, this is weird. Why is the dad from Malcolm in the Middle doing here? <laughs> Dr. Watley? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Watley's made made good on himself. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I had the same experience where I'd watch, I'd like come home and watch like twenty minutes on AMC or whatever of like a season one episode, and I had no context whatsoever for what it was. And then eventually, when I actually started watching the show, probably a year later. I was like, oh, yeah, I had kind of like deja vu for a second, where I was like, this is that show. We also didn't talk about Mad Men in 2007. This was quite a good era for prestige TV. And um, I did both that one. Yeah, that's a that's a bad myth. We both uh, definitely were still watching Entourage. (laughs) Have to watch that all the way through to the finale. Yeah, you got to see when Vince buys uh, dinosaur bones or something. I believe it was a dinosaur egg. A dinosaur egg. Yeah, that was a plot point. And Adrian Peterson wanted it. That sounds about right. Uh, the, the, when you search Mad Men, people also ask, what is wrong with Don Draper? Oh, they were buying that, a skull of an Allosaurus, apparently. Oh, yeah. That happens. Uh, 2008 in film. Yeah, uh, semi-pro, which I recall we were you there? The, the Sonics did a screen of that. Absolutely, I some, was there. Yeah, <laughs> you know that's really the thing. The team moved, but the part you really forget is not the basketball. The part that you really miss is not the basketball. It's the sneak previews of the movie Semi-Pro, starring <laughs> Will Ferrell and Andre Benjamin. Uh, a movie that I had not watched in well over a decade before watching it early in the quarantine at the you... recommendation of my friend Zach Harper. <laughs> recommendation of Harper? Because I watched this like about the same time probably as you. Harper actually did not recommend it to me. Uh, and... I mean, you recommended it on Twitter. It's not like he like came to me and it was like, Kevin, here's what you need to watch. <laughs> I was shocked how bad this movie was. Did you have the same response? I thought it was better than I remembered because I remember really? it being very bad. One of the plot points is that Woody Harrelson is really good at basketball. I mean, it's a comedy. There, there's just like also the, I don't know if you're aware of this. Woody Harrelson is in arguably the greatest basketball movie of all time. I guess that is true. He just like the semi-pro version of Woody Harrelson is just like he was very on. old by 2000, 2008. It was very old. Uh. Also, like, by modern standards, it's kind of crazy how, you know, 2008 wasn't that long ago, but, like, the language is just, like, there's so many things that I'm like, whoa, man, that is offensive by modern standards in semi-pro or whatever. Like, listening to it, I was like, these jokes are not okay anymore. I mean, it is also a period piece of the 1970s. It's not like it was set in 2008. It was set in the 1970s, but it was also set in 2008. Fair. And there was not enough Andre Benjamin. There's plenty of Andre Benjamin. Who? Okay, so the um, another movie I remember going to see in the theaters. 21. Oh, yeah. Maybe the single worst movie I've ever seen in the, in the theater. <laughs> oh, man. You have a good really boy, like... Boys and Girls on your first ever date. Uh, wow. <laughs> starring Jason Biggs. I but... have it. That's true. <laughs> uh... You really think that movie was that bad? MGMT? Yes. 
the, the soundtrack was good. Yes, I was. I said like that. That album, the MGMT uh, album, came out in two thousand seven. But I wanted to save it to talk about it here because it was such a like big moment to be in that movie. But I really liked the book, Bringing Down the House. Oh yeah, we loved. It was so short. <laughs> it was the, the perfect length for a non-reader. <clears throat> it was a page turner, but then they like turned all the Asian characters white. It was like very Hollywood in two thousand eight. Did they really? Oh yeah. Wow. I mean, Jeff Ma was like the, the key guy in the book, right? Wait, the main character of twenty of twenty one was white. Yeah. Wow. Oh boy, <clears throat> man. There aren't enough MGMTs in the world to make that okay. <laughs> oh no, there definitely are. Hmm? Okay, also in 2008. Uh, a big year for comedies, I would say. We've got Freeding Sarah Marshall. The, the Jason Siegel vehicle, right? This is, the, or, this is you, peak Siegel. You could argue peak Afetau. So you've got Step Brothers and then Pineapple Express. And, and I think... For me personally, I was a little bit out of these comedies by this point, and maybe it was a, as a byproduct of getting slightly older and out of college. But it was like a lot of these films I hadn't seen. I didn't see Step Brothers until like three months ago for the first time ever. Wait, really? Yeah, I didn't see Pineapple Express until last week. I I might have I've seen Pineapple Express like maybe like half watched it one time or whatever like. The and it's funny because all of these people who are in these films, I was so in on. Especially like I probably watched Freaks and Geeks for the first time in two thousand eight, and it was like I went through and watched all Freaks and Geeks and all of Undeclared around this time period, and then I really liked Freaking Sarah Marshall, but it's like I never really cared about Pineapple Express, and I I I I probably just like read critic reviews of Step Brothers or whatever, and it didn't hit right away. It's funny because Adam Scott is one of the funniest characters in it, and I've been a Scott stan since the mid-90s, right? <laughs> since his turn is... Uh, Griff? It's not... Griff? Griff I was going to say Grinch, but yeah, Griff, yeah. <laughs> You're just reading that Bumber blog and reading the game. Stole the show. Uh, but uh, the, it was like, Adam Scott is a tour de force in Step Brothers. That's correct. Having not seen that this Adam Scott performance, I was really missing out on something for more than a decade. But this was sort of like this was the the tail end. Like this this was this was not the peak, but and I'm sure for a lot of people like these were the the number one films for them from this time period. But it was like for us, I feel like it was more old school into Anchorman and things like that. And this was like oh, okay, like. By the time you got to semi-pro, I was like, Will Ferrell's, it's falling off a little bit. A little bit. I think that we were disappointed by semi-pro, because our expectations were still pretty high going into it. I, and I also think there was maybe some exhaust from these films, where it's like, if you put out every... There's so much that's coming out, like, boom, 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 2004 through 2008... And it was like, all of a sudden you get to like this point, you're just like, damn, we have seen so much stuff in the same sort of genre by this point that it was like, 
we'd had our period or whatever, and this almost was like a whole new generation's period, even though it's only four years. Yeah. So, it, it for whatever reason, like, 2008 was not the right time period for me. But now I'm like, damn, Step Brothers is a classic film. The sing-along? Anything else in 2008? What a year. <laughs> it was a year. 